This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. If I could only know that you are half as happy to be here as I am, I'd be happier than I am. Just to be here to worship God today, the privilege, the joy, the opportunity of that, and to see you here demonstrating your respect for the Lord. And as Randy has mentioned, this is a special day in the lives of many people. And let me just say, before I get into this lesson, those of you that have your mothers, let them know how much you love them and appreciate them. Those of us that grew up not knowing that joy, I was four years old when my mother came down with tuberculosis, and back in those days you were going to die. It was just a matter of time. She lived two years and slipped away. But, you know, if, if you've got a mother, tell her you love her, hug her, tell her how much you appreciate her. Among those that are here today is Dennis Hood. Dennis and I go back many, many years. He and Susan worshiped with us at Creve Hall when I was honored to preach there. We worked together at Lipscomb. And uh, I've got so many wonderful things, memories uh, from them. I'm going to tell you one thing. I've used it so many times in talking about the logic of little children. When their son, Joel, was five or six, we were building the new auditorium but still meeting in the old auditorium. And so one Sunday night, Dennis and Susan and Joel came right down on a pew about like where he's sitting now. And Joel started just having a fit. He was about five or six years old. And Dennis was trying to settle him down and find out what was wrong with him. Well, if a person was going to obey the gospel, they'd come down the aisle, they'd sit down on the front seat, I'd take their confession, and then take them and baptize them. Well, he'd figured that out. And so he's having a fit, and Dennis is trying to figure out what is wrong with you. And he said, I don't want that preacher putting me under that water. <laughs> you know, you go down there and you're headed for the water. Those are just among so many great memories. As I mentioned in the Bible class hour, you know, I'm happy to be here because I'm expecting to live with you folks forever in heaven. And to get to know you better here on earth, I consider a great privilege of my life. What is the most difficult thing you've ever undertaken in all of your life? Well, it probably happened right here. And it will be a challenge for you today. Worship to God has to be the most demanding, difficult, and yet delightful experience of the Christian life. God is looking for true worshipers. That's what Jesus tells us. You know, John 4, 23 and 24. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now you'll observe Jesus didn't say God is looking for worshipers. There's a reason for that. Human beings are naturally worshipers. Arnold Toynbee, Toynbee the British scholar in his study of the religions of man, concluded that in all human history, man has never worshipped but one of three things. He's worshipped nature. And you and I would understand nature worship has ranged all the way from sacrificing a baby to appease the wrath of a so-called river god to contemporary scientism or that worldview that 
you know, science is the only reality unless you can verify it empirically, not even real. And then Toynbee said, man is worship self. You read about self-worship in Philippians 3 when Paul said there were some people whose God was their own belly. If there has ever been a generation of people that knew about self-worship, this has to be it. People looking out for number one. It is not unusual in this day and time for a woman to walk away from her husband. She has to go out and authenticate him, authenticate herself. I can tell you one of the saddest stories I've run into lately when a woman walked away from her husband and four children. Hard to believe that a person could do it. Yeah, it, it's me worship. It's, it's number one. I, I'm the only one that really counts. Then Toynbee said, man is worship deity or God. You and I are interested today in becoming the worshipers whom God seeks. Isn't that the ideal of your mind and heart and life as a Christian? I want to be one of those worshipers. I want to encourage other people to be one of those worshipers. And if that becomes a reality for any of us or all of us, there are three things that are absolutely essential. Number one, I must know God. I will not and I cannot worship a God I do not know. God's covenant people under the old covenant they couldn't worship him because they didn't know him. Through the great prophet Isaiah, the statesman prophet, the one quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament prophet, Isaiah opened up by saying, Hear, O heavens, hear, O earth, the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people do not consider. Now they tried to worship they had the ritual intact, they had the forms, but they had a worship body without a spirit. And so if you're going down to verse 11 of Isaiah 1, God's going to be talking to them through Isaiah, and he wants to know, what's the purpose of the multitude of these sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm, I'm full of the fat of fed beasts and uh, the blood of bullocks and, and, and all of that. That doesn't delight me. He said, when you come to appear before me, who, who's required this, that you should tread my courts? Bring no more vain obligations. Incense is an abomination unto me. During new moons and Sabbaths and calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It troubles me, God said. And then he goes on to say, when you make long prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So they only had a ritual. It was devoid of righteousness. They had a religious veneer. There was no reality. So over in chapter 29, Isaiah is going to tell them that their worship is vain. He says, God, God through him said, This people draweth nigh but to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart they have removed far from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Now, vain worship is just worship without content. That's where they were. And it's interesting, Jesus quoted that very thing to some religious people, according to Matthew chapter 15, 8 and 9. Quoting Isaiah 29, 13. This people draweth nigh to me with the mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me. So here were religious people that couldn't worship God because they didn't know God. Take all those smart, uh, intelligent philosophers at Athens, one of the intellectual centers of the ancient world, already had produced Socrates, that first so-called moral philosopher. Plato had already done his work there with 
writing his Republic and his illustrious student Aristotle with all those people helping him in education. All of that, Zeno, he'd already taught his students out on the stoa or the porch there in Athens and so his students were called the Stoics. And then Epicurus, he'd already taught his, I mean these were intelligent, intelligent people. And yet when Paul came there, encountered certain Epicurean Stoic philosophers, Luke tells us in Acts 17, 18, and, and then he said, you men of Athens, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. And then if you analyze that profound Mars Hill discourse, and it is profound. There have been, I know, master's theses written on Paul's Mars Hill discourse because he opens with what they would call today the cosmological argument for the existence of God. There's a, there's a world, God made the world and all things therein, and he moves over to what they would call the teleological argument. He said, uh, we ought not to think the Godhood is likened unto gold, silver, and stone graven by art and man's device. Your, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And then he moves down to say to all of those people, you are a moral person. You are morally responsible, and God has a day of judgment coming in which you judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And the judgment implies moral responsibility and reality. It's all right there in this profound Mars Hill discourse to people that could not worship God because they did not know God. So I'm going to ask you a personal question. I always ask myself this question, how well do I know God? So that's my question to you. How well do you know God? Now I'm not asking can you give today those three basic arguments to an unbeliever trying to convince him or her that there is really a God. How, how personally is God known to you? I found it interesting in the greatest sermon ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At least 15 times in that sermon, Jesus referred to God as Father. Repeat it. Our Father who art in heaven. Now, when I really get to know God, I get to know him as a father. Many of us are fathers. Uh, my children will tell you I'm not the ideal father. But I think they all can tell you there's one thing they know for sure and have known. Dad has an unconditional love for us. That does not change. My heavenly father is the ideal father. He knows his own. He claims his own. We are very important to him. And never a prayer goes up from a child of God but that God hears and God answers. And God answers. It may not be an immediate answer. It may be you're going to have to wait a little while, or it may be no. I've lived long enough to understand some of the great blessings God's given me have been no, no answers to some of the prayers I prayed at the time. I was as sincere as I knew how to be. But God is omniscient. He knew better. So how well do you know God? You say, well, how do you get to know God? Jesus said God is a spirit. Amen. God is in heaven. That's correct. Well, how can I, a frail human being on this earth, get to know a God who is spirit in heaven? Let me illustrate it this way. How do you get to know another human being? It'll come two ways. And these are so close together to dichotomize them might be very difficult, if not impossible. It'll come through communication and association. 
well, how can I communicate with God? He is in heaven. How can God communicate with me? Well, we're blessed, folks. Right here, God is trying to communicate to us. This is the word of God. This is as much the word of God as if he came down from heaven and orally declared what we find written. I learned that in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. This is God breathed writing or scripture. And therefore, furnishes us completely or thoroughly unto every good work. So, God potentially is communicating with me right here through his word. Now, once that communication becomes real to me, and I get an insight into the love of God for me, and the sacrifice of his son for me, and uh, we sang about it, you know, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean, how marvelous. So I commenced to see, when Jesus was out there at Golgotha, baptized in human pain, that language would be in poverty to adequately describe. God had laid on his innocent son the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. You talk about love, that's it. You talk about sacrifice, go to the cross and you'll see it. And so I commenced to appreciate a God like that. And I commenced to love a son of God who would demonstrate that kind of concern for me and that kind of love for me. And so I love him because he first loved me, 1 John 4:19. And so I respond through obedience to the will of God, through his son. And I can test myself. Do I really know God? Have I communicated with him enough? Now what about association? I can associate with the things of God. The psalmist said it in the 19th Psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Who can go out on a clear night when the proud prince of the evening is marching across the sky to the applause of a million stars and not see the handiwork of God? Amen. Who can go over to the great smoky mountains and go up to the very top and then walk up there? And, and I, use, I still like to do this. It takes me a little longer to get up there now, you know, where you look out and see that mass of demonstration of God's power. But there have been times I've trudged up there and not trying to put my religion on my sleeve. I've just quietly sang, how great thou art. I mean, look at the handiwork of God. Look at that precious little girl or boy that you hold in your arms whose spirit was recently fathered by God in their conception in their birth, a, a handiwork of God. Look in the face of an elderly child of God, a woman who's borne the burden, the heat of the day, who's gone through a lot of difficulties and challenges in life and has still held on to her integrity and her faith in God. See God. Look at an aged man that has gone through heartache and heartbreak 
that has faced challenges in life and never surrendered his faith, never surrendered his integrity, and see God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 John 4, 3, 14. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Isn't that interesting? You know, the folks I love and those with whom I love to associate tells me volumes about myself. I regret, I sincerely regret, that there are people who evidently feel more comfortable on Sunday night letting a Hollywood crowd entertain them than they do in fellowship with the people of God. I, I mean, that hurts me. I'm not angry about it. I just know what they're missing. That, that bunch out there, they don't know God. And, and I, don't, I don't want to associate with that crowd. So my television time is rather limited. I do occasionally watch the news when, when I'm real brave and strong. And I'll go in some morning and turn on the morning news, and I'll say, well, I'm going to turn on the blues now and say how many people got shot in Nashville last night. And that's usually the news, really. And, and then it's gloom and doom. My take on the news media of America is this. Things are as bad as they can possibly get, but they're going to get worse. So you folks worry all the time. Go down to that pharmacy and get those pep pills to overcome the effect of your tranquilizer so maybe you can go and see your psychiatrist. Things are really tough, I'm telling you. That's what we're fed a steady diet of in this country. It's utterly ridiculous. But I'm not in charge of the news media, quite obviously. But I'm saying this. Associate with the people of God. And you can get some real insights into the love of God. I mean, it's genuine. It's, it's for real. Communicate with God. And once he has communicated through his word to you, and as a penitent believer you were baptized into Christ whereby you became a child of God, then you've got another line of communication. You can talk to God. You can pray to God. One of the great privileges of a human being is to be able to talk to the eternal God of heaven and earth. And so we get to know God I, if, if you rode in the back seat of my car and I didn't know you were back there, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would say, sure you would say I, I don't know about this guy. I talk to God a whole lot. I'll say, Father, did you see that guy? He nearly got my left front fender. He cut in too close on me. And uh, Father, did, did you, are you aware of that tailgater that's really upsetting me? Or, or the person that blows his, you know, the light just turns green and that guy's blowing the horn. Now, I, I, I will promise you, I haven't blown back at anybody in three months. I just kind of take it, but it upsets me. I've been thinking about getting me a little thing printed for the back of my car. This car was bought for me by a tailgater. Say as close as you can because I need me another one. This aggravates me, and I have to talk to God about it, and I do. God's my heavenly father. Years ago, you young folks would not remember this. We had a little thing going in this country. God is dead. The old German philosopher Nietzsche had espoused that foolishness. And so there was a little thing going in this country. Some guys in Atlanta even wrote a book on the title, Christian Atheism. You talk about oxymoron. That was one with a capital O underlined three times. But uh, I saw a bumper sticker in Memphis that said, "My during that God is dead stuff, my God is alive. Sorry about yours. And uh, I read that on a subway wall in New York, someone had written in bold letters, 
God is dead, signed Nietzsche. And right under that, someone has written, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. Well, my God's alive. Sorry about yours. You know God as a father? If not, you are depriving yourself one of the great honors and privileges and joys of life. Second, God is looking for a true worshiper that loves him. I can't worship a God I don't love. I won't be motivated to. You know, sometimes it's easy to love God. You know, things are going well with you. Feel good. Have a good job. Pay your debts. Have a good family. Have kids love you and you love them. I mean, life is rich and full. Easy to love God. Then the storm comes. And first thing you know, you have a child that's seriously ill. Or you have a spouse that's seriously ill. Or your father's dying from a malignancy. Or your mother's dying. Still love God? You know, I've been with folks, and I'm sure Randy has had a similar experience. Uh, I, I've been with some folks that I, I literally walked the floor with them because they'd lost a, a teenage child. And, and when it really gets crushing, it's when the child has taken his own life. Now, that's, that's when it really gets crushing. And, you know, when, when you see people go through these ordeals, if, if you're close enough to them, one or two situations I felt close enough, I, I would just ask this daddy, How, how's your love for God? Is it holding on, I hope and pray? So there are times it's easy to love God and times it may not be. One time when Jesus was here on this earth teaching, he was interrupted by a lawyer, Luke, I mean Luke 10, 25, a man that really knew Jewish law. He said uh, to Jesus, what's the great commandment of the law? Now I have not personally counted, but I understand from a Jewish rabbi, there are over 600 commands in the old covenant, the old law, Old Testament. This man said, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, what is written and how readest thou? Now, those are the two questions. What is written? What is it really saying? And how do you read it? Now, if some folks were just plain honest about it, they would answer, how do you read? I don't. I don't have time. I'm so busy doing this. I'm so busy doing that. I just don't have time to read. Laura Bush years ago came down to Florence, Alabama and spoke at a dinner for Heritage University and in a question and answer session she was asked, what's the thing about your husband that has impressed you the most? And here was her answer. Since 1987, he's read his Bible through every year. Every year. And uh, if you don't have something to discipline yourself, uh, you may not find much time to read it. Those who read it through we just have to take time to do some reading. It takes time to do it, but it blesses your life. What's written and how do you read? The man answered, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Your neighbors, yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And then Luke said, but he willing to justify himself. Aren't we all there? Willing to justify himself. Said, who's my neighbor? You know the parable of the Good Samaritan. It came out of that question. Who is my neighbor? 
My neighbor is the person that needs me to help him at a time of special need. It's not just the person lives next door to me. They may live across town from me or even in another state. If they're in need and I have a means of helping them, that's my neighbor. Jesus was asked this question again toward the end of his ministry on this earth. Way over in Matthew 22, 39. Uh, lawyer, another man knew Jewish law. What's the great commandment of the law? Jesus said, you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now Jesus is quoting, obviously, from Deuteronomy 6. When Moses was repeating the law, to that younger generation that had survived the 40-year trek through the wilderness when all the older people had died with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. He had them on the plains of Moab, and he's giving them the Deuteronomy, or the second law, the repeating of the law. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. So Jesus said, Love God. You know, if I really love God... Worshiping him is a delightful joy of my life. If I don't love him, I may look upon going to worship as something I have to do. A burden to be born. Rather than a privilege to be enjoyed. I mean, if you really love God, worshiping him is not an imposition on your time nor a burden upon your life. It's your privilege. It's your opportunity. It's your joy to show adoration, respect, and appreciation and love for God. To spend one sacred day where God and saints abide affords diviner joy than thousand days beside. I love it more. Where God resorts to keep the door than shining courts, the poet said in a little hymn that we sometimes sing. And how true, how true. Now, I can test my love for God. I can test if I know him. John tells me how. 1 John 3, start in verse 3. 1 John 2, I'm sorry, start in verse 3. And hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. Now, that's not my language. I'm giving you 1 John chapter 2. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. Whoso keeps this word, verily in him is the love of God perfected or brought to maturity. Now I test my love for God. 1 John chapter 5. John says, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. That's what Jesus had said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John says, 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They're not an imposition. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. And it's a joy. Let me repeat. I cannot worship a God I do not know. I will not worship a God I do not love. Now we come down to the third thing necessary to be a true worshiper. Jesus said here in John 4, 24, God is a spirit. Well, I have a spirit fathered by God himself, Hebrews 12 and 9. And you have a spirit. There's more to us than just this material, fleshly body. All of us have a spirit within us. And it's here that worship becomes a potential. And if my spirit is connecting to God, who is spirit, 
I am a worshiper. Now let's take it down to specifics. Let's take singing. I love to sing. I've always loved to sing. Back years ago, uh, out in rural areas, when good farmers laid their crops by, by July 4, then you'd have a little slack period and we'd have singing schools, summer singing schools. Sometimes they'd go on for two weeks. My daddy used to teach those singing schools. You know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, half step, whole step, one flag, bird's eye, with all that stuff. And, and I, I appreciate all of that. I, I like harmony in, in singing. But you could have a trained opera singer sitting by a widow lady who has trouble knowing a doe from a me so far as those little signatures are concerned, and she may outsing in God's perspective. She may outsing that trained opera singer if his or her heart is on impressing somebody with how they can sing. But here's when singing really gets to be worshipped. I'll give you Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, now here's the next phrase, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. See, now that's when singing becomes worship. When my heart is connecting to God, when my spirit is connecting to God who is spirit, and I'm not just saying words to a tune, and, and I appreciate the tunes, but it's more to me than that. It, it's connecting to God, who is spirit. You take Ephesians 5:19, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirits, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I wish the religious world generally knew that. That God wants an instrument to accompany our singing and that instrument is specified as my heart you know it it's sad to me that people imagine in this day and time it's come, become so utterly ridiculous you've got religious organizations today they'll cover the pulpit area with with drums and all of that kind of carrying on stuff it reminds me of the Quaker man fella slapped him and the Quaker man said, I cannot slap thee back, but I can buy thy son drums. So there are a lot of religious organizations, if they don't have drums, evidently they don't think they can have worship. Got to have a lot of racket, you know. Organs, pianos, electric guitars, drums, and name it. Well, God says, I want your heart to accompany your singing. Amen. That's the instrument I want to accompany your singing. How much more specific could God make it? But now if my heart's not accompanying it, I'm not worshiping God. But oh, when that heart is accompanying it. And I appreciate that song we sing. We praise the old God. And you could not have picked a better one to introduce a lesson on worship. To God be the glory. Amen. Now, let's take this beautiful memorial right here. You know, when, when men want memorials they want them made out of granite or they, they want marble they want something that will endure the test of time Jesus used two fragile things to create a memorial to himself bread and fruit of the vine did you ever play church when you were a kid we used to play church you know we'd have crackers for the bread and we'd have water for the fruit of the vine and 
play church. Kids can do that. It takes mature Christians to keep this memorial to the Son of God. I wish now in retrospect, when I obeyed the gospel that August 7, 1943, that my father or somebody had sat me down and said, now listen, Tom, one thing you'll do every Lord's Day is remember the Savior by keeping a memorial to him. And it's going to be very demanding. You're going to have to gird up the loins of your mind, as Peter would say. You're going to have to focus your attention in order to do that. And it, for some of you that have small children or some of you that have gone through that, I tell our young mothers, and God has blessed us with a flock of beautiful little children where I preach. So I tell the young mothers, now it's going to be d demanding on you to keep this memorial while you're trying to keep a mass of energy with skin over it called a baby under control. But the Lord understands that. And you just be patient. They will grow up. And the Lord, I promise you, he, un he understands that. So be patient with yourself and be patient with them. Have you ever tried to eat the Lord's Supper when your heart was breaking? I mean, really breaking. Pretty difficult, wasn't it? You'd have to keep reminding yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got to get my mind off that heartache and come back to what I'm, I'm doing. I'm honoring my Lord. When I was a kid, we had preaching twice a month, first and third Sundays, and otherwise, the other two Sundays we'd gather and we'd sing and then we'd break up for classes and then we'd come back together and sing and have a reading of scripture and somebody lead a prayer. And then I heard this as a child many, many times. A fellow would get up, men would accompany him up to the Lord's table and he'd say, it's now time for the communion. Communion. And I knew it had to do with the Lord's Supper because that's what they did in connection with that word communion. Later on, I had an opportunity to study the word in the original language, the koinonia word, and it literally means a partnership. I meet my Savior. I have a communion with him if I'm really partaking of this as a memorial. One of the most profound discussions of the Lord's Supper I've ever read is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Not the most detailed, that's chapter 11, chapter 10. Paul said, starting in verse 15, I speak unto wise men, judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Seeing we who are many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And it's interesting to me that he talks about the cup before he does the bread, but when Jesus instituted it, that was not the order in which it was done. You go to chapter 11, Paul said, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and then after that, the cup. Why emphasize the cup? Because that, to me, is the blood of Christ, and everything I have as a child of God is dependent upon the blood of the Son of God. You take my reconciliation to God, you take my justification by God, you take my salvation by the Lord, everything takes me right back to the blood of the Son of God. My cleansing as a Christian, 1 John 1, 7, we walk in the light, the blood keeps on, present tense, keeps on cleansing us. So it centers on the death of the Son of God. But I have a communion here. I meet Jesus here. And that's when this becomes profound experience. When in this bread, that's not just bread to me, it's the body of my Lord. I'm not talking about transubstantiation. I read about that doctrine. No, it's still bread. Paul said, as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, it's still the fruit of the vine. 
And yet, it's more than just bread and fruit of the vine. To me, this is the body of my Savior, and this is the blood of my Lord. And this is a profound moment in my Christian life to keep that memorial to the Son of God. So a lot of times, it's very, very demanding. But oh, the privilege of it, the joy of it, the spiritual uplift of this memorial when we keep it the way the Lord wants it to be kept as a communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't have time to talk about the giving, but the heart has to be in that. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 6 through 7, you give as you purpose in your heart. Every facet of true worship to God involves, if it's real worship, it involves my spirit, my mind, my heart, because there is where I'm connecting to God who is spirit. And the external commands are vital to leading me up in my spirit to connect to God who is spirit. Ah, the joy of true worship to God. To spend one sacred day where God and saints abide affords diviner joy than a thousand days beside. You've come today, I hope, to worship God. And I hope all of us have been true worshipers. And that God will accept our praise, our adoration, our efforts to glorify him, that he'll accept that in his own honor and to his own glory. Those of you that are not children of God, you know, you're really depriving yourself the great opportunity to get to know the people of God, to have fellowship with them, joint participation in worship and work for the Lord. You're denying yourself the privilege of being able to call God in heaven Father. You're denying yourself the opportunity of living within the context of God's providential care over your life. But that's not necessary. If you are a firm believer that Jesus is the Son of God, you just believe God's testimony about that. If there is a penitence in your mind, if you're willing to change your mind about controlling your former life and letting the Lord become the Lord of your life and your destiny, you could demonstrate that today by sweetening your lips with his loving name. Randy could baptize you into Christ where you would become a child of God with all the privileges and joys that God's children have all the time. If you need to come home because you have not been faithful, if the old world kept pulling and tugging and pulling and tugging and the lies of Satan commenced to influence your thinking and led you away from your fidelity to Christ, you can come home. won't be easy, but it's right. And if you would make that decision today, all heaven would rejoice and everybody that loves you would rejoice with them. We have a song we're going to sing. We're not going to do this as a tradition. We're going to do it as an exhortation. We're going to take our hearts and voices and try to exhort you and encourage you. If you need to respond to the greatest invitation humanity will ever know from the Son of God himself, come unto me, I will give you rest. We encourage you to respond to that if you need to while we sing.